and welcome to Genetics Unzipped, the Genetics Society podcast with me, Dr. Sally LePage. In this episode, we're having the time of our lives and clocking in to chat about the genetics of circadian rhythms. Today's episode is actually inspired by an email we received from one of our listeners, Steve Zitnik, who wrote to us to say, I am almost through the Genetics Unzipped Back catalogue and I don't think you've had a programme on the clock genes. These rank as my most amazing genes and I'm wondering if you and your staff would consider this wildly complex topic for a show. Well, with over 60 hours of content in our back catalogue, listening to them all is quite the achievement. And if Steve thinks clock genes are the most amazing genes, we thought we'd better check them out. To start us off, I sat down with Dr Priya Crosby, who's a molecular biologist at UC Santa Cruz. She's interested in how circadian rhythms work at the cellular level and how molecules can tell the time. But before we go any further, what exactly are circadian rhythms? Circadian rhythms are an intrinsic biological oscillation with a period, so a repeating unit of around 24 hours, and they occur across biological kingdoms, so fungi, humans, plants, fish, some bacteria, and at all levels of biological scale. So you can have a circadian rhythm in whole ecosystems, but you can also have a circadian rhythm at the level of the single cell. So single cells keep time. So they're these really broad biological oscillations. When you say it's an intrinsic oscillating mechanism, so that immediately makes me think of quartz watches. Because I'll be honest, I find it magical that devices can tell the time, let alone biological living things. And if I'm right, quartz clocks tell the time because the crystal inside, a literal crystal of quartz, wobbles about a certain frequency. And they're like, ah, after you've done a certain thousand wobbles, that's a second do we have like tiny little wobbling crystals inside our bodies that tell the time? Not quite. So it's not quite as directly physical or perhaps as simple as that. But it is intrinsic in the same way. And if you think about your quartz watch, it doesn't require any external information to know how long a day is. It doesn't necessarily know what the time is. You will have to reset your watch to the exact time but it will know how long a day is left to its own devices. And that's exactly the same thing with circadian rhythm. So if you take anything that has a circadian rhythm, be it a plant or a human or even a single cell, and you put it in a dark room at a constant temperature with no external information about what the time is, it will still keep this intrinsic 24-hour biological oscillation just fine by itself, pretty much in perpetuity. So in that sense, it's just like your quartz watch. And what is this thing? Is it a protein? Is it a gene? Is it a cell? So it differs slightly depending on the organism, but all circadian rhythms are intrinsically a cellular property. So that their smallest unit, single cells, keep time, which I think really blows my mind. That's really what I focus on. The idea that a single cell knows how long a day is, I think it's nuts, right? But so within every single one of these cells, we generally speaking have what we would call a negative feedback loop, which is a term that I think we take from engineering, where generally we have a gene 
that makes an RNA that makes a protein, and that protein goes back and inhibits the transcription of its own gene, so it prevents its own gene being made. And then eventually that protein gets degraded, and then it means its gene can be made again, and that whole cycle takes around 24 hours. So that's the kind of broad model of how single cells are keeping time, this transcriptional, translational feedback loop. And I, at the moment in particular, really think about these proteins that are made by these specific circadian genes. I say that they go back and they inhibit their own transcription, but exactly how do they do that? They often make friends with other proteins and they interact with them and they do various things in different places in the cell before they go back or in order to go back and inhibit their own transcription. And I really look at how do these different proteins interact with each other to generate that 24-hour oscillation? So the gene is coding for a protein and that protein stops the gene from making the protein. Are you saying that the gene has to make friends and join up with other proteins in order to make that switch? Or can it do it if it's on its own, if it's a billy no mates and has no friends? No, so it has to interact with other proteins. So the important thing is initially the thing that is making the gene is not the gene itself. It's normally another transcriptional activator. So normally a one or two proteins. And then they're making another protein that then goes back and interacts with the first protein or two in order to inhibit their own transcription. That's a really simple circuit. And so you have to ask, well, how is it physically interacting at that point of transcription to inhibit transcription? There are also some what we would call post-translational modifications that are really important for how these proteins work. So proteins can get phosphorylated, so they can go around and have a phosphate group put on them, and that can change their function as well. And so our lab in particular spends quite a lot of time thinking about how these post-translation modifications influence protein behavior. So it's the same protein, but it now has a slightly different quality because you've stuck another thing on the side of it. And presumably the reason why the gene turning on, making the protein that would eventually turn it off, doesn't immediately cause it to switch off is because it takes time for that concentration to build up in the cell. It takes time to add all of these phosphate groups on. And so is it that kind of slow buildup? Is that what gives you the 24 hours? It would be kind of useless if it turned itself off immediately after it was produced. Yeah, it's a really good question and that we don't really know the exact answer to it. So we know that these proteins get made and we know it takes them 24 hours for the whole cycle to occur, but exactly where that delay is, why it is 24 hours, is still unknown. We know that it probably has something to do with some of these phosphorylation events and also the time it takes for it to move from the cytoplasm where it gets made back into the nucleus where it's being transcribed. That also takes time. But exactly how long all these delays are and exactly what has to happen to make it 24 hours is still actually a a really open question. So, which seems kind of crazy, right? Like the idea that we know it's 24 hours, we don't really know how it is 24 hours. So it's a good question. So you're looking at mammal cells and the mammal cells are able to know when 24 hours is up. What does that mean for the mammal in question? Thinking beyond the cell, what does that mean for the individual? What is controlled by these clocks? So at the level of the whole organism, there's very little that is not controlled by a circadian rhythm. So the kind of obvious thing for you will most certainly be the sleep-wake cycle. You get sleepy and you wake up with a 24-hour basis. And that isn't just reactionary to the day-night cycle. If I put you in a dark room, you would also get sleepy and wake up about once every 24 hours. That's an intrinsic thing. 
But there are so many other much less obvious circadian rhythms. So you might know, for example, that you have lots of cycles in things like hormones. So women in particular have a really clear cycle in testosterone. It's much higher in the evening. So if you're someone who lifts weights and you're female, generally speaking, it's better to do that in the evening. You will find it easier. But then all sorts of other things. Your kidney function varies on a circadian basis, your reaction time. But then if you think about the level of the single cell that makes up an organism, again, almost everything there has a circadian basis, which will inherently influence the whole organism function. I'm struggling to give you examples of things that don't have circadian rhythms, basically. Every, almost everything does at some level. And you mentioned that this is an intrinsic mechanism. And you just said, if I was to stick someone in a dark room, they'd still have this cycle. But I know that, for example, blue light affects when you feel sleepy. It's why all of my computers and phone screens turn red when it gets to a certain time at night. You can get jet lag. And they say one of the ways to beat jet lag is to time your meals because meal times affect your circadian cycles. So how does all of these external things affect what you're describing as an intrinsic mechanism that doesn't have any other inputs. Yeah, so you've got to what we would call the second fundamental feature of circadian rhythm. So the first fundamental feature is they have a 24-hour period. But the second fundamental feature is they are able to synchronise their phase, i.e. what time they actually think it is, to specific external events. There's no point in having an internal clock that thinks it's a totally different time to the time in the outside world. And that's exactly what happens when you're jet lagged, right? So I currently live in California. I'm flying back to the UK on Thursday. So I will be eight hours out of phase, which is not fun. But my body will fairly quickly, over a couple of days, be able to realign what time it thinks it is with the external world. And you've picked pretty much all the right cues. So when you see light is really important. When you eat food is really important. Also, when you're physically active is also quite important. And if you can make sure that when you do shift, when you are jet lagged and you do change time zone, that you very quickly try and do these things on the time of the place that you've arrived at, that's generally the best way of solving jet lag. You're not going to beat it. You can't beat that aspect of your biology. You're going to be jet lagged for a bit, but you can make it less miserable and you can realign faster if you do think about when you see light, when you eat food and when you're physically active. Do all of the cells in an individual have the same clock? Yes, essentially. So in that they have the same components. So every single cell in your body has the same protein components that are forming this clock. So yes. And do all individuals in a species have the same clock? Because you hear about like night owls and morning larks and and what have you. Is that a feature of the proteins and the genes being different or the the brain and the hormonal signal bit being different? So possibly both, but the one that we know most about is the proteins. So you're absolutely right that everyone has the same core protein components, but proteins can differ very slightly from protein to protein. We can have very small mutations that are not necessarily bad, but can influence how that protein functions just a little bit. Um, And that gives us rise to what we call chronotypes. So these different circadian phenotypes. And this is this idea of morning larks or evening owls. So most people often, I think, intuitively know whether they are a morning person, whether they are a late night person, or whether they kind of sit somewhere in the middle. And that is not normally 
And I always thought this was very surprising. That's not something that just is in your head about how you've been socially conditioned. That is actually controlled by your biology. You tend to find that people who are more morning people do have very small mutations in proteins that alter their circadian clock just very, very slightly that makes them slightly more likely to be alert in the morning. And people who are more night owls like myself tend to have very small mutations that make them slightly more likely to be better at functioning later at night. So yeah, that's really an intrinsic part of your biology, this kind of chronotypic difference between individuals. Other than it just being super cool, why is it important to understand the molecular biology of circadian rhythms? So there's a few reasons. So firstly, and the one that really kind of interests me, is that if you mess with your circadian rhythm, so particularly if you do things like you engage in shift work, jet lag's one thing, but shift work is like extreme jet lag, particularly rotational shift work. So if you work two nights and then you take a day off and then you do three days and then you do two nights... It's a bit like, you know, flying across the Atlantic over and over and over and over again. And your circadian clock really doesn't handle that very well because it's continually unclear what the actual external time is. And we know that people who engage in shift work are much more susceptible to a whole load of disorders. They're much more likely to get metabolic syndrome, so things like type 2 diabetes. They're more susceptible to a whole load of types of cancer. They're also more likely to develop a number of Uh, mental health issues, particularly things like depression. It's really not good for you. But we really don't know exactly why it's not good for you. Like, uh, Fundamentally, at a biological level, we don't know why it's not good for you. And it means that we can't always make really good recommendations about what you might be able to do to reduce your disease risk if we don't understand the fundamental biology that underlies it. So I actually think this is another socioeconomic issue. So if you actually look at shift workers, I think lots of people think that doctors are mostly shift workers, but actually most shift workers fall at the kind of lower end of the income spectrum. They're things like transport and packaging and shipping. And I think it might be a real driver of health inequality that these people are being, as a function of their job, being forced to effectively mess with their barge. And I think that's really an important thing that people don't think about. Like it's a cool idea that you have this internal sine wave and an internal clock. But the fact that if you mess with it, it's bad for you and it's impacting some groups of people more than others, I think is quite important. So firstly, the idea that if you mess with your circadian rhythm at the molecular level, things go wrong at the molecular level, but we don't really understand why. And then conversely, we also know that if you get a number of diseases, particularly some of these neurological diseases, things like Parkinson's and dementia, one of the really first symptoms that we see in these patients is not cognitive deficits or motor deficits is actually a loss of the capacity to maintain a circadian rhythm at the whole organism level. So one of the primary reasons that people who have dementia are put into care outside of their own family home is not because they have necessarily like deficits that necessarily require loads of help in a cognitive capacity, but that they they are their circadian rhythm is so disrupted that they're up and awake and they need help in the middle of the night when their family members really need to be asleep and people find that really hard. And so we don't really understand what's going wrong there, why these disorders are associated with disruption of circadian rhythms. But again, that is a fundamentally molecular question. What's going wrong at the molecular level to mean that patients with these disorders are disrupted in this way. And so if we, in both ways, if we can understand the basic molecular biology underlies it, we might be able to make either behavioural or pharmacological suggestions that might make 
things like shift work less bad for you and also things like dementia we might be able to in some way restore their circadian rhythm to some extent which you know a makes people much easier to care for and actually improves their symptoms in many cases so again would mean that people with these disorders were able to be out of care and in their own family setting for much much longer as priya just mentioned small genetic differences can explain why some people are able to get up and go out for a run meditate and cook a full breakfast before I've even woken up in the morning. Meanwhile, I'm wired all the way up till midnight when everyone else has gone to bed. But some people have genetic disorders that cause much bigger shifts in their circadian rhythms. One researcher who's looking into these is Professor Carrie Parch, a biophysicist at UC Santa Cruz. So I asked her how you go about studying these clock genes in cells. And just so you know, Carrie has a motor neurone disease that affects her speech. So she's using an AI clone of her own voice to answer my questions. Isn't technology amazing? We can actually study these rhythms in cells and watch the clock tick. To do this, we borrow the luciferous gene that makes fireflies glow and we attach it to the end of the clock gene PER2 so that the cells emit light when PER2 protein is present at nighttime and they fall dark when the protein is gone by the morning. It's really beautiful. You can watch these movies of cells giving off a pulse of light every evening for days on end. Using these glowy cells to report on clock timing, we then begin to probe the function of other clock genes by making mutations in the DNA to test how the parts of this biological clock work together in the cell. As biochemists, we're interested in the molecular details of how these clock proteins fit together and how inherited changes to them alters the clock. Sometimes we study these proteins outside the cell in test tubes so we can solve their structures and actually see how they fit together at the atomic level. This helps us identify steps in the molecular clock that are important for timekeeping and come up with new strategies for potentially controlling the clock with drugs. Why don't we have any drugs for jet lag yet? You know, I'm not quite sure. It's probably that jet lag seems like an insignificant health problem, or a first world problem brought on by the choice to travel, but a drug that could help us speed up our ability to synchronize internal biological clocks to a mismatched light, dark environment could have incredible benefits for shift workers who routinely fight their clocks to be alert at night. The World Health Organization listed shift work as a probable carcinogen because of the disruption of circadian rhythms that comes from bouncing back and forth between day and night shifts. There's been some exciting work recently identifying natural products that help animal models shift their clocks much faster to simulated travel or some that fortify their biological clocks to improve health on higher fat Western diets and throughout aging. With recent advances in our understanding of druggable targets in the clock, I'm incredibly optimistic that one day we'll have the ability to leverage our circadian rhythms to improve our overall health and well being. We've just heard how different individuals have small variations in their clock genes that makes them a morning lark or a night owl but you're interested in the bigger genetic disorders. So what happens when someone's clock genes go wrong? 
When people have genetic disorders related to circadian rhythms, they manifest as sleep phase disorders that significantly advance or delay bedtimes, giving rise to extreme morning lark or night owl behavior. It turns out that folks with these sleep phase disorders that manifest as extreme morning larks or night owls often tend to have other issues like migraines, mood disorders, and hormone dysregulation. With advances in human genetics, scientists like Louis Pidoshek and Ying Hui Fu at UCSF have been able to pinpoint inherited changes in several different clock genes and begin to identify why these families have a tendency to go to bed as early as 5 or 6 p.m., waking well before the sun rises. They found that the circadian rhythms of these extreme morning larks run much faster than most people, often completing a cycle in only 20 hours, Imagine having an internal rhythm of 20 hours and being stuck in a 24-hour world that you can never match up with. This permanent jet lag can wreak havoc on much more than just our sleep. Jonathan Philpot in my lab recently showed that these extreme morning larks lack a sort of molecular snooze button that holds off a key step in the circadian clock inside your cells that is necessary to create rhythms of about 24 hours. Without this snooze button, two important clock proteins called PER1 and PER2 fail to stick around through the evening and set the proper timing of your internal clock. These extreme morning larks are pretty rare, but Mike Young's lab at Rockefeller University reported an incredibly prevalent night owl mutation in another clock gene called cryptochrome 1 or CRY1 that predisposes people to late bedtimes of 2 to 3 a.m. Depending on your genetic heritage, up to 1 in 75 people carry this mutation in CRY1 and struggle to fall asleep before midnight, making it hard to get a full night of sleep before an early morning start at work or school. Carlo Perico in my lab showed how this inherited change to the CRY1 protein supercharges its function by eliminating a bit of the protein that binds into a deep pocket on CRY1 to control how tightly it binds its clock protein partners. Based on this, we think it will be possible to identify drug-like molecules that could bind to this pocket and restore an earlier bedtime for night owls that want to get a full night of sleep. There's still lots more work to do here, but it's been exciting to see research go from human genetics all the way to biochemistry, pinpointing how these inherited changes in clock genes influence circadian rhythms and our behavior. And what's the treatment for people with these kinds of conditions? Some folks use light therapy and well-timed melatonin supplements, but there aren't many other great options out there right now. What are the big questions you really want to answer in this field? I'm still fascinated by the idea that essentially every one of our cells measures time on a daily basis. I want to understand how this biological timekeeping on a 24-hour scale is coordinated by proteins that interact with each other and wiggle around on a time scale of only milliseconds. What kind of molecular hijinks do these proteins get up to in order to make a day-long clock? It's also remarkable that we can use information about the world outside, like light, or when we eat to adjust our internal clocks and align with the rotation of Earth or, in the future, some new environment. While we understand how light affects the alignment of our circadian rhythms, we actually don't understand how the molecular clocks adjust yet. There are still so many questions left to be answered.
You're listening to Genetics Unzipped, the Genetic Society podcast. You can find out more information about this episode on our website, geneticsunzipped.com, or come and say hello to us over on Twitter at geneticsunzip. We always like to let you know about other podcasts similar to ours that you might like. And today we want to highlight Nice Genes, which is a podcast from Genome BC hosted by Dr. Kaylee Byers. This series, they're focusing on shattering assumptions, whether that's myths about same-sex behaviour in nature and the genetics of sexuality, or the assumption that body fat isn't healthy and the role of epigenetics on obesity. And it just so happens that their next episode is all about, you guessed it, circadian rhythms and sleep. So if you're enjoying what we've been chatting about so far and you want to find out about the two genes underpinning our ability to sleep and the link between circadian rhythms and ADHD, go and check out the Nice Genes podcast available on all the usual podcast platforms. Here's what's coming up this fortnight from the Genetic Society. The deadline for the final training grant of the year is fast approaching. Members can get up to £1,200 to attend training courses or for a visit to another lab to train in a specific genetic technique. You need to apply before midnight on the 15th of November and there's more details at genetics.org.uk or you can follow the link in our show notes. The Genetic Society is also hosting an event about the genetics of future food production and the Green Revolution 2.0, starting on the 7th of November. And there's still time to sign up to attend virtually. Professor Dame Caroline Dean, who Kat spoke to earlier this season, will be giving her award lecture. And there will be discussions about how plant sciences can help grow food in the face of climate change, pressures on land use and reducing soil quality. There's more information on the Genetic Society's website and of course there's also a link on our website geneticsunzipped.com along with the transcript for this episode. Speaking of food security and climate change, in our Bread and Fishes episode at the end of last year, we spoke with Dr Hannah Rees, about how circadian rhythms affect wheat crops and how she's effectively giving wheat jet lag to create a more future-proof plant. Well, now we all know about the molecular biology of circadian rhythms, I want to continue the conversation about how we can influence these daily cycles to improve our lives. Professor Anthony Dodd is a plant scientist at the John Innes Centre, who's interested in clock genes not only in humans and mammals, but across the tree of life, from plants to fungi to bacteria. One of the organisms Anthony has been studying is one you might not think of when it comes to day and night cycles, but it turns out understanding its circadian rhythms may help us save millions of human lives. And that's because the organism in question is Plasmodium falciparum, otherwise known as malaria. Malaria is caused by a parasite called Plasmodium that infects your blood. And it has a very distinct life cycle. 
that involves a phase in, in the liver and a phase in the red blood cells. And these specific stages of the life cycle appear to be aligned with the 24-hour cycle in the human or mammalian host. So one hypothesis is that the synchronization of the malaria parasites to a 24-hour cycle enables them to all be at the same stage in their life cycle at each point, which enables them to overwhelm the host immune system. Whereas if only a few of them were in the blood stage at any point in time, it would be less likely that they would not be attacked by the host immune system. So it's like at the start of a spy film where they're all like, let's synchronise our watches to 800 hours. Right, exactly. And, and then by doing that, it gives them greater infectious power. But one of the questions that's open at the moment that's quite interesting is exactly what the malaria parasites are aligning their daily rhythm to. And there's been uh, some thinking that it might involve the timekeeping hormone in the blood, which is called melatonin. But there's emerging evidence that it actually could also relate to the feeding fasting cycle that we undergo over a 24-hour period. There's some really beautiful work from the University of Edinburgh that has shown that perhaps rather than the malaria 24-hour cycle aligning with the cycles of light and dark that their human host is exposed to, which is communicated through the blood hormone melatonin, instead it might relate to the, the feeding fasting cycle. I think it's not entirely clear why that might be at the moment and whether the alignment with the feeding fasting cycle itself is what provides an advantage for the malaria parasites or whether they just use that information as a proxy for something else. We know that the parasites seem to be able to perceive a variety of cues, but a thing to remember is that perhaps if we can break this perception of the host 24-hour cycle by the parasites, it might make it easier to treat malaria. Well, this is exactly what I'm thinking. Can we weaken malaria by having a midnight snack? That's possible. Disruption of the host circadian rhythm in some way could weaken malaria. There's a study that was conducted in Brazil a number of years ago that suggested that supplying quite large doses of the hormone melatonin to mice that had been infected with malaria could enable the immune system to overcome the parasite more effectively. But I think that used quite high doses of melatonin that are not really representative of what happens in nature. So there's some really exciting thinking around this at the moment that we might be able to harness our knowledge of circadian rhythms in both mammals and in the parasites to make it easier to treat the infection. Yeah, especially with drug-resistant malaria, we need everything we can get. The other kind of translational aspect I wanted to chat about was pesticides and glyphosate. So Roundup to you or me with a garden. It works better or works worse at certain times of day? It's a poison. Doesn't it just poison it regardless? Circadian rhythms do quite a lot of different things in plants. They control their growth rates, they control photosynthesis, they control how they use their carbohydrates. 
However, they also affect how plants respond to their environments. And there were a number of reports that were published in the 1980s. They'd used field studies and they, they sprayed plants with various pesticides and they found that the effectiveness of those pesticides varied according to the time of day. And I noticed this some years ago and, and was talking to some people that work at a company called Syngenta who develop agrochemicals. And we had the idea that the biological clock might affect how plants could respond to pesticides based on these older field studies that have been conducted. So we decided to test this and we decided to test this general idea using what is the world's most commonly used herbicide that's used a lot in agriculture that's called glyphosate, which works by interfering with a particular biochemical pathway that's only found in plants, which is why it's non-toxic to other organisms. And we developed a set of experiments whereby the glyphosate could be applied in the lab under very controlled conditions to Arabidopsis plants at different times of day. And then we measured how well the plants grew after treatments with glyphosate at different times of day. What we found was that there was um, variation across the day in how sensitive the plants were to glyphosate. So that when they received a glyphosate treatment first thing in the morning, it was much more effective than when the treatment was applied at other times of day. We think this might be because of the way that glyphosate interferes with the ability of the plant to produce a hormone called auxin because it affects the production of certain amino acids that are required for auxin production. And during that study, the other thing we found was that the effective dose of the herbicide that was needed varied according to the time of day. So it might be possible to tune the concentration of a herbicide or other agrochemical according to the time of day so that less could be used, which would cost farmers less and result in less of the agrochemicals entering the environment. This was a, a kind of new insight, but it was it, it has interesting conceptual parallels to the way that certain pharmacological drugs have varying effectiveness depending on the time that they're applied. So, you know, certain hospital drugs, if they're given at certain times of day, are more effective than at other times of day. And in our study, we found that something very similar in principle was occurring in plants, whereby the time of day that glyphosate was applied led to a variation in the response to glyphosate. We only tested glyphosate, but you could imagine that because plants have so many different metabolites and proteins that have a 24-hour cycle in their expression, that the targets of other types of chemicals that are applied to plants during farming might also have time of day sensitivity. So it opens a kind of whole area of science which might help us to reduce the cost of uh, agricultural processes and reduce the impacts of agriculture on the environment as well. That's all for now. Thanks to Dr Priya Crosby, Professor Carrie Parch and Professor Anthony Dodd. We'll be back next time when I'll be chatting with author and science journalist Rebecca Coffey about some amazing adaptations and Darwinian delights.
For more information about this podcast, including show notes, transcripts, links, references, and everything else, head over to geneticsunzipped.com. You can find us for now on Twitter, or X, or whatever it's called when this episode goes live, at geneticsunzip. And please do take a moment to leave us a rating in the Spotify app or review us on Apple Podcasts. It really makes a difference and it helps more people discover the show. This episode of Genetics Unzipped was written, presented and produced by me, Sally LePage. It's a first Create the Media production for the Genetics Society, one of the oldest learner societies dedicated to promoting research, training, teaching and public engagement in all areas of genetics. You can find out more and apply to join at genetics.org.uk. The executive producer is Kat Arney. Our theme music was composed by Dan Pollard. The logo was designed by James Mayle and audio production was by Emma Werner. Thanks for listening and until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.